a plea for a certain New York oil dynasty to stop. Just stop it. Everything you're doing, stop what you're doing because you're about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. Like that is what I'm saying to this family. This podcast contains the arguably witty banter of two friends, Skippy and Dougals, that like to debate about investing. The content is intended to be entertaining and for informational purposes only, not investment advice. You should do your own research and consult a financial professional before using any of the information in this podcast, and especially before investing. Early today. It is early today. It's uh, before 7 a.m. I'm all tired over here, rubbing that stuff out of your eyes. What's that stuff called? Some people call it sleep. Yeah, I, I was always called it was sleep. I was I was always called it was sleep. Is what I mean. makes no sense. And then no. and then Dougal's over there is post workout. He has you're like going crazy. You're you're a little too happy for me. I don't know what to do with this. Told you I got the endorphins going on. <laughs> what what does your mom think when you say things like that? <laughs> Decades ago, people just decided to just stop dealing with it. Like someone someone once told me. Half the time I don't listen to you and the other half the time you don't make sense. And I, I think that that's a pretty fair way to go about the world. Says so a guy who hosts his own podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that's not all y'all. That's not all y'all. Y'all didn't say that. No, uh, let's just continue on the, the Dougal's. I told you I thought I was on punk a couple of weeks back. You sent out this blog post and I think maybe you just sent it to me and it's a joke that says you read 124 books last year. Now, I have no doubt that you actually read 124 books, but we're going to have like an intervention right here. All right. That is too many books, Dougals. I think it is. And I'm going to be full disclosure here. So 99% of what I read, I listen to. So let's just, and we've sure, talked about sure. that in the past, but sometimes people get all up in arms when they're like, you said you read and blah, blah, blah. But uh, regardless, I consumed, yeah, 124 books. And I think it was too many. I think it was too many last year. But I, I read some stuff that like really impacted me. I thought it was great. There were a lot of gems. Oh, Happy absolutely. I did it, but it might have been too many. And and the point to listening is it's a big deal because that means you can do it while multitasking in a way that you can't with a physical book in your hands, right? But I find if I consume too much, whether it's like podcasting or audiobooks, sometimes I don't retain quite as mm-hmm. much information. Is that true for you? I don't think so for me. So, well, let me, I'm saying for me, I'm not saying, no, I retain every detail of it anyway. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying the uh, relative for me, it's not necessarily that different because generally speaking, when I consume a book back in the, when I used to read all the time too, I usually leave a book with like two to three high level concepts and then two to three like phrases or paragraphs or sentences that really stick with me. Like that's what I leave the book with. And I still leave the book with that yeah, no matter totally. what medium. Some people read a book, like a history book, and they want to know like every detail, like on page three, word four, or like in 1964, this person did that. And like, that's not what I leave books with. For me, it, it works out. But if someone's trying to consume every last detail and retain every last detail on something, then like, that's not the way to do it. And if I'm trying to do that, like if I'm studying, if I was in college and I was like studying, I'm not going to listen to it. Like yeah, that's a absolutely. different thing. So yeah. Now, I, so I are you, is there like the audible premium plus plan? And then there's like the, the Dougal's plan, which is like, yeah, audible doesn't have a plan that fits my, <laughs> it was, it was too expensive. So my wife had an intervention 
and now i i split between audible and uh like the library app because libraries also have audible books or sorry audiobooks and so uh i'll first search for something in the library and if it doesn't exist there then i i go to audible um because there was an intervention seriously because i was going through uh, amazon's plan i would do like three or four plans a year so it became a line item budget and that's just too much Perfect. I mean, so that goes to our first topic of the day, I believe, which uh, I hope you're getting some decent rewards on all those audible purchases, right? You sent me this Financial Times article that really has one graph that just blew me away. And the article is simply called, Who Really Pays for Your Rewards? And this is talking about credit card rewards. One, the headline was was very clickable for me. So I went, who does pay for my rewards? So I click in and one of the the takeaway, the biggest takeaway, I would love to get in some detail, which I think you're about to do. The biggest takeaway yeah. for me is, as always, lower income, less sophisticated folks get screwed. Like that is the that's the takeaway, which is sucky. Exactly. So if you talk and this, it's this one graph that will be on the Substack on Monday. But this graph is just incredible. If you talk about the normal credit card business model, your lower credit score customers, people in the 660 range, typically have a negative net value of $20 a month. And then as your credit score improves, say you get north of 800, typically trend towards zero. Now with rewards credit cards, they put that that S-curve on steroids effectively, right? And they said, we're going to punish the lower credit score people more and in order to reward the higher credit score folks. I don't know if I've done a good job articulating that, but it's just fascinating to see. Yeah, it's it's the anti-Robin Hood. And if you if you turn that into like the behaviors, right, of what causes that or look at it from the behavioral standpoint, what you're saying is that if you take a classic credit card or a rewards credit card, either one, if you are on the lower FICO score, the lower credit rating, you're not paying your balance off every month. And if yes. you're on your if you're on the higher end, you're coming close to paying your balance off every month. And so that means that's the what you were saying with the classic cards, it goes towards zero. It's because you're just using the card and paying it off. And so there isn't there, it's like a little bit in favor of the credit card company. So they still make money, but not that far. But if you're paying your balance off every month and have a rewards card, you're just reaping the rewards. Yes. And yeah. this is a big market. Huge market. Credit cards or simple debt products are a way that a lot of banks, notably Chase, uh, gets in households for the first time. So this is kind of the gateway drug to Chase products. I'll just talk about them. It's a huge deal. I'm on I'm on the end of the spectrum who benefits greatly from reward credit cards because I never run a balance. And I get a significant sum of benefits a year. Like I'd be off this chart. This is This is the first time I almost felt bad about that because... I wanted to rob the bank of that money, and this made me feel like I was robbing other consumers of that money. So you wanted to become Robin Hood? <laughs> for, <laughs> so, for personal reasons, yes. Yeah, for personal reasons. <laughs> it's really disturbing. And because the, as what you were describing, right, the on the lower FICO score, lower credit score, like side of this, the difference between that classic credit card and rewards is so vast. I mean, you're talking yes. minus $40 a month. That's almost a thousand dollars, or sorry, eight hundred dollars. What am I, what am I doing here? No, 
$500. There we go. I'll get the math eventually. $500 a year, which is a lot like for individuals other uh, there, especially when you say, you know, that uh, the old uh, study that came out that said something along the lines of most people don't have $400 uh, to mm-hmm. come up with for like an emergency. And when you think about $500, like going into something like this, it's pretty compounding. I I really also liked, sorry, I'm taking over your your spot here. But I really also liked how, by liked, I mean, uh, think that it is worthy of learning from, is what I mean by like, because it's not good. Uh, The analogies between the way that these rewards credit cards were described in this Financial Times piece and what we talked about with buy now, pay later. Sure. Obviously, there aren't rewards there, but similar in that it says people tend to focus on immediate benefits while ignoring the costs, right? And so things end up adding up. Uh, credit cards and banks design these reward credit cards with low promotional rates to take advantage of behavioral biases, right, that that folks have. It's very, very similar because it's it's one of those, it looks really great to start. You start racking up like the debt on it, and then you end up screwed in the long term. Yeah. I mean, if I was to get on a soapbox here, and I'll try not to, what this graph says is kind of common sense, but it's something that's tough to live by. If you're on the lower end of that spectrum, you want to avoid debt at all costs because you, what it means to take out a credit card in all likelihood for you, on average, you know, this is not everybody, is you lose 500 bucks a year to the credit card companies. That's not good for anyone's financial picture. Yeah. And that can be said across multiple debt products, not just credit cards. So if there's one takeaway from my perspective, it's just like, unless you know that you can absolutely rob the credit card company of a positive reward on a yearly basis, steer clear and do something else. Yeah. And it's even more, I don't want to say dangerous, but I'd say like sneaky. Maybe that's the right uh, mm-hmm. right way to say it. If you look for those folks that are in like between 720 and 780, let's call it like a 750 score, right? Sure. According to this graph. If you look there, those are likely the folks that are like, yeah, I'm running this balance, but I get all these rewards. So like it definitely pays off, right? And you th- like probably don't do the math on it, but just assume that it's paying off. And I think that's when in this and other things, like it really becomes sneaky. Because when you're... I think oftentimes if you're on the the lower end of this, you know that it sucks for you. Maybe you can't get out of it, right? I'm not saying that, yeah. but like it, it's like you know that this is not good and you're, not, you're probably not re, uh, reaping the rewards. But when you're in that middle ground, it's kind of like the uh, like good is the enemy of great kind of thing. <laughs> like you're you're just like it's it's probably paying off. I'm getting all these airline miles. Yeah, and you're like I know I got a free hotel yeah. and a free flight, so it feels like I'm probably making. Exactly. I, I just pulled up a distribution of. Uh, FICO credit scores in the U.S. Um, so 80% of people are below that 800 figure, meaning if you look at this graph, the credit card companies are making money on roughly 80% of folks. And 25% of people are between 740 and 799, which is kind of that sweet spot you're talking about there. Ah, that's interesting. Thank you, Financial Times. Good work. Okay, I'm going to reach into the fishbowl for not so much a topic, but just a, a statement and a plea for a certain New York oil dynasty to stop. Just stop it. That's like everything you're doing. Stop what you're doing because you're about to ruin the image and the style that you're used to. Like that is what I'm saying to this family. There is a New York 
New York oil dynasty. And for some reason, I didn't write down the name of the family. It's like Belfer or something like that. But so there's this family that seemingly is a magnet for finding large scale scams to invest in. They have lost billions of dollars <laughs> investing in Enron, FTX, and Bernie Madoff. <laughs> And when there was a, it's hard to know how much someone, how much these organ, um, families are actually worth, right? So I don't know that. But the this uh, piece that I was reading, it kind of broke out what they were thinking, which I think is probably incorrect. But you know, they're trying their best looking at like Forbes and whatnot. And it was saying that they lost two billion dollars on Enron and were then worth one hundred and eleven million dollars, which is a that if if let's just assume that's true for a second, that's a substantial portion. And then it seems like they and then they cut their FTX stake at one point down to $28 million. So this also doesn't seem like it's a small percent, even if those numbers quite aren't right. But if they're directionally correct, this is not a small percent. So all I'm saying is Belfer family, just VTI, spy, bonds, cash earning 3%, like quite literally anything else you could do. Uh, ARC. Like might be better. Like just do anything except what you're tempted to invest in. That's all. All right. My fishbowl almost falls on that. I have a Twitter recommendation, which is the inverse Kramer ETF. It's just at Kramer Tracker. And for those who don't know, because he's come up a lot recently, Jim Kramer hosts <laughs> a financial television show. Uh, is it still nightly, Diggles? Like, I don't even know. Is it on MSNBC? So, I think it's I don't still pretty frequent. Daily, nightly, something. Um, but lately, they've just been dunking on him in a way that makes me laugh every time. So they had the... Uh, we talked about it on the show. Like six months ago or something, he cried about his uh, meta recommendation. And uh, Well, hold on. Hold on. Sorry. <laughs> Go back further than that. A year or so ago, he was shouting meta from the rooftops. Yes. Yeah. When it was overvalued. Yes. Then he cried. Okay. Continue. Then he cried. Then he cried and said he trusted Zuckerberg. And trust me, I've had as much frustration with Zuckerberg as anyone. And Meta, Facebook's parent company, is up 50% since then. He did a similar thing with Bitcoin. Bitcoin is up 35% since then. I know that it just presents one side of the picture, but for some reason, it's just so humorous to me. <laughs> yeah. Again, I think Jim Cramer is a nice guy who knows a lot about investing and Wall Street and stuff, but like, just don't follow his stock picks, people. So if anyone just needs a laugh, please do that. Sorry, while I'm on laughing, we talked about Google and uh, Google layoffs last week. The, there's this, this is another, I feel like it must be getting punked. There was one TikTok influencer who worked at Google who would do a day in the life of Google every day. Did you see these doogles? Yeah. And it was always really glamorous, like probably not true, but acted like there was no work being done and it was all working out, getting massages and eating at the coffee shops. And her last one was like, life update. I was laid off. <laughs> like it just, it's gotta be made up. All, all this stuff. Yeah. The world we live in is crazy. Outrageous. Separate from, let's put the Google thing aside for a second. Yeah. There were, I was in an Uber the other day and the guy that was driving me around, he was asking me about like where I work 
um, whether or not we're hiring because he's on the market, right? All this yeah. stuff. I was like, cool. So we, we were talking about it. And then he proceeds to tell me this story, which is like not a story that you tell someone that you're like trying to potentially work at their organization. He said, yeah, I was, you know, I did X, Y, Z for a while. It doesn't matter. And he's like, then I went to this healthcare company. Um, I was there for about three years. Two of those years were over the pandemic. And I was like, oh man, you know, it's hard. Like during the pandemic, healthcare, that was hard. Was, yeah. Yeah. Not for me. Said, uh, I'd probably get about an email a month and I made sure to respond to that email. <laughs> but other than that, like I kind of just did whatever I want. Like I basically had two years off. And then he, and then he said, and then these people say, I need to come back into the office. And so I show back up to the office and they, they basically confronted him <laughs> with like what, what they saw. And he, his response to them, he said, he was like, so I tried to get myself some severance. And so I went, yeah, obviously y'all don't, you don't need my role anymore. So you should just let me go. And they, and they went, uh, no, we're going to have you quit. Like, like you, you're, you've obviously already quit. So we're just going to have you quit. He's like, I didn't get any severance. So you know, it's like, I appreciate the hustle starting out with the networking. That's, <laughs> that's great. And then it went downhill from there. I, I think it's early, so I'll try not to get derailed with this, but one time back a uh, couple of years back we were hiring folks and we do these uh, skills assessments in real time so like basically this quiz to show that you knew you had technical expertise this guy shares the screen and opens up his browser and has all these links uh, that are very visible at the top of his browser like how to get hired at xyz company that's not the company he's currently interviewing at with me and man was that fun it yeah, good that's, conversation. That's, it's wonderful. Okay. I'm going to get back right, on task yeah. here. <laughs> okay. I'm going to go in the fishbowl, talk about a topic we brought up a little bit before. I thought this piece was interesting on it. It's about active fund managers. So we've talked about active versus passive investing. What that means is on the active side, you have an individual or a set of portfolio managers that will buy and trade stocks based on whatever their theme or thesis or whatever it is. So that's the active part of it versus a passive investing is when you buy into an index fund that might say, we're just going to track the S&P 500. And so there isn't an active part of it, but it's just, it's based, it's static. Let's just call it virtually static as far as the portfolio manager is concerned. Okay. So this one is saying, let's go talk to a bunch of active portfolio managers and see what they think about active portfolio management versus yeah. passive. This is by Robin Powell on the evidence-based investor. I loved it. So first, it actually, it talks about something called communities of practice, uh, and then it compares these communities of practice to active portfolio managers. And the rationale it's saying is because uh, communities of practice often defend themselves. Like they're, they stand up for their own rights and they do it in three ways. The first is they assert a strong identity. So that means they say like, this is who we are. This is our purpose. So they make sure they cloud themselves in this purpose. Second is that they basically like call out delegitimizes the the word they use the knowledge of those that aren't in the group so they create this us versus them mm -hmm. mentality and then third they make sure they sound smarter than everybody else like they say that the things that i know no one else could know right so those are the three things they say so first here's my purpose and it's strong if you don't believe in that purpose you wrong 
And the reason that I should be trusted with this is because I have knowledge that no one else could possibly have. So it's saying like, those are like the three ways that communities of practice uh, defend themselves. And let's go talk to these active portfolio managers. With me so far? Yeah. So they talked to 69 senior level fund managers across London, New York, and Chicago. So big time financial cities, at -hmm. least. And nonsense ensued. That's my that's my emphasis. Emphasis Dougals. This is not in the piece, but nonsense ensued. And so as I mentioned, they they said, let's go ahead and talk. Like, give me all the detail about how you feel about about passive investing, how you feel about active investing, what's the impact of your work, et cetera, et cetera. And and when I say nonsense ensued, these folks were surprised too, though they they did not use the word nonsense. Here's an example. And this is the kind of stuff you've stated before, which is why I love this. So some people said, I wouldn't even invest in my own fund. That's way more um, common than your average individual thinks. Yes. Here's another one. I don't see any reason why this trend towards passive management won't continue. All my own money is in index funds. That's another quote from, from someone they talked to. And then the same person who said that their money was entirely in passive index funds still wanted to be an active fund manager. And so they're like, why? Like, why do you, why do you love this? And he said, I get out of bed each morning thinking I have an incredibly interesting job because I can learn about China one day, Mexico the next, microfluidics the next day, and aircraft engines the next day, and then debate things with smart people. It's like, cool. I mean, that's a, it makes sense, right? Uh, yep. to, to go into work. But then they had to coin this new phrase. So when they were, the people during the research had to coin a new phrase because of what they were hearing. And this phrase is epistemic opportunism, epistemic opportunity. If you're going to coin something new, why not make it something that rolls off the tongue, they were thinking. So epistemic opportunism, which means snatching at any explanation that portrays active fund management as superior. (laughs) The epistemic element has to do with knowledge, they say. Active managers still argue that their knowledge base and ways of investing are superior, even if they concede that they tend to underperform passive funds on the whole. Mind blowing. I mean, garbage. Mind blowing is what it yeah. is. So it's really like what I, what hit me in the face with the force of a thousand pies when I was reading this was the cognitive dissonance that has to exist for you to be able to say, I have so much knowledge, superior knowledge, know so much more about this topic and can deploy funds better. And I know I'm going to underperform. And I might, I'm likely not putting my own money in the funds that I think yeah. that I run. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's like, a, I don't know, it's like a basketball player, right? That gets out there and they're like, I can dribble better than you. I can shoot better than you. I can get my team hyped up better than you. I could probably even coach better than you. But put me on that court and I will score less points. <laughs> this is the name of the game. Like, what is, what is this? Now, the one exception that might be worth mentioning, but it is, you know, some sort of hedge fund that is designed to protect, you know, designed to be less volatile and therefore underperform in so-called normal times. That is very rare though. And that's not the heart of this piece. Um but that is is a frequent talking point in the hedge fund community is like, oh, well, we're, we're not we're not trying to outperform here. And effectively, they're trying to collect fees. Um, one thing I wanted to mention there 
our friends at the excess returns podcast do something that cuts through all this noise by interviewing really smart investors uh in a segment they call show us your portfolio which is simply like cuts through everything and says yep. how do you invest your personal money the the reason i wanted to mention that is because that approach it's the equivalent of put your money where your mouth is or you know one of those it's not what you, you actions speak louder than words right um so I think that is a really worthwhile thing if you're talking investments with someone and trying to get to the heart of the matter to ask how they invest their own money rather than what they think about the markets these days. Because those are often very different things. They are. And when you really want to dig in, like, why do you invest that way? Right. Is there, sure. there are valid ways. And even in this piece, I mean, I'm down with the person that was like, my job's really interesting. I love it. That's why I do it. Cool. Like yeah. fully get that, right? I completely get on board with that. Thought this was interesting. Again, Robin Powell, the evidence-based investor is where it's at. Um, and the research, I didn't mention this, the research was done by Yuval uh, Milo from Warwick Business School, Crawford Spence from King's College London, and James Valentine from Marquette University. So just shouting that out. Love it. The cognitive dissonance you mentioned happens a lot in investing, but I, I think it also happens a lot in the professional world when you talk to someone about their job because it's natural for us as humans to say what we do is really important and no one else could do it and so i bet you that you get some of that outside of the investing world as well oh yeah yeah i mean to a certain extent it's it's really hard to say that that's not true and then also think through well then why would why would you keep my job like if you're talking yep. to like your boss yep. like it's Right. But yeah, I mean, I at mean least the your boy that was responding to one email a month, like who else can do that? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's very impressive. His ratio of work to job keeping <laughs> off the charts, <laughs> off the charts. OK, my fishbowl is up next. We love Bill Gurley and we talk about him frequently on the show. He was a guest on the Tim Ferriss podcast this week. Dugas, did you make it through this one? I got like 90% through. So I think I have about 10 minutes left. So it's basically. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, there's just two things that jumped out at me pretty in depth and uh, more history than I would have liked because I know who Bill Gurley is. But I think Tim was trying to introduce him to the masses here. The first thing that I found really interesting was the discussion around open source technologies. Uh, the example he gave, I, I don't know all the specifics and I probably won't get them perfectly here, but when Amazon really took off with uh, AWS and was the dominant player in cloud services, uh, Google's retort, and maybe Microsoft too, if I remember correctly, was to create an open so source consortium uh, that allowed people to easily switch cloud providers as a defense mechanism. And he gave other examples of that. And I just thought that was so fascinating. Basically, when some dominant player has the large majority of market share, say 70% plus, and the rest of their community goes, this is bad for everybody if they just run away with this. To say our response to that is to do basically non-proprietary technology in order to try and bring market share back to the masses is fascinating. and something that I really didn't know that much about. I thought that on that point and uh, and some others that I'm sure we'll get to the the principles underlying it were like the market dynamics when I say principles they're underlying it I think were pretty 
fascinating. And he was also, I think it was during that section too, but tell me if, if this is different. He was discussing how the longevity, the potential longevity that can exist from disruptive models with that sometimes folks will dismiss. Like he talked about network effects. He talked about open source being like a couple examples of something that, uh, that often was dismissed immediately, but that he said, now we're, you know, 20, 25 years into this and you're still seeing like people being able to take advantage of those. It's just in different ways. I thought it was pretty interesting, but I, I did really enjoy that. And he understandably big Jeff Bezos fan. Right. And I, yeah. I enjoyed some of the the elements that he that I'd heard before, but it's just Bezos from a entrepreneurial perspective and from a running or operator, right? Like running a company perspective. I continually, whenever I hear some of this stuff, um, I think it's fascinating. He mentioned this interview from 2016 with Bezos at um a code conference uh that I'm gonna I'm gonna watch because Bezos is one of the best. Yeah, he's like a robot born to build and run great companies with a long-term perspective really impressive company owner no the only other thing i was going to mention is this quote that i think if you just hear it gets taken out of context a little context a little bit but was so interesting to me he was talking about financial sophistication and he said if your average person in new york in the financial industry is a on a scale one to ten is a 8.5 the average person in silicon valley might be a two um, comparing those things, he's one of the few, I mean, it happens that has significant experience on Wall Street as a sell-side analyst before moving over to benchmark and doing venture uh, capital stuff in Silicon Valley. And I just hadn't heard it really explained that way. Again, that soundbite probably doesn't provide all the context, but fascinating to hear that perspective. And And it's very true. The reason he brought that up was also just saying that there's so much learning and value that can come from getting to basic business and financial principles for entrepreneurs that mm-hmm. is skipped right uh almost by their very nature founders can like dismiss everything else and say like i am this hasn't existed before i'm creating something brand new i'm going to do it my way and fly by the seat of your pants that's part of the fun of it also and he and he goes yeah cool and like use frameworks. And I loved the fact that he said, on each of these topics I'm about to mention, there are probably 20 frameworks that could work. Just choose one. Not using any is is the enemy. Uh, And I often see that in, in jobs that I've had, where we might sit and debate, should we use this framework or that framework? Which one's better? And honestly, it's just like, use something. Like that is that's kind of it so that we can all have the same lexicon, right? Use all use the same language and just have something that frames our, um, like our rowing in the same direction, right? Our philosophy around that. But I really like the, like that element too. Yeah. When you say frameworks there, I completely agree. I think some people might think of that as guiding principles or rules that make, um, that give you some process to your yeah, exactly. decision making, right? W- without that, you can go any which way haphazardly and you can make one decision that contradicts a previous decision you made with some sort of guiding principles and frameworks you can yeah you, it's not a guarantee that you have the perfect one but you're likely to be more successful with a framework in place it also cuts time for the reason so the reason you stated for frameworks yes and it cuts down time cuz if you use templates right you you might miss the 10 to 20% of like a i don't know of some detail that um, that you could have captured if you didn't use a template. 
but it's faster to read stuff. Like you know where to yep. look in order to see something. So it just it makes it a lot simpler. So I I really enjoyed that that fact. Um, I also enjoyed the early open table days that he was describing, uh, where he's like, it didn't make any sense, right? Like if you're looking outside in on what he was what he was saying here was he said that there's a question that that he's learned how to ask that he and maybe benchmark as a whole, which is uh, where he's worked um, in venture capital. The question that they would ask is like, what if things go right? Or some version of that, as opposed to looking for all the things that could possibly go wrong, look for the things that could go right. And obviously that's dangerous, right? Cause you can't like invest in everything that comes along. But if you look for what could go right, then you test those hypotheses. Like here's the stuff because you're looking for breakouts. Sorry, Cause the point here, as we mentioned before in venture capitals, you're looking for stuff that might be able to grow like a hundred X like what it was like you need these huge investment returns for some and so you have to be able to say if this goes right could it completely blow the industry out of the water and if the answer ends up being no like if it, even if all these things happen it's just potentially successful then you you can't make the investment so he talked about open table as like one of those early on where they it didn't make any sense because they had to go into restaurants and like sell them computers Mm-hmm. Right for them to be able to use, and they didn't have broadband or like an internet, you know, to be hooked up with. And so he's like, it, it was so like fugly, basically. There he talked about uh, Uber was another one where he was saying, with Uber, when they were looking at the potential size of the market, they were, they uh, capped it at the taxi market. He's like, but what if things go right? Then if this is so much bigger yeah. than like the taxi market, and, right? And so it's like things like that that are hard and counterintuitive about the industry. I like the open table story specifically. So they they ran all their models and they were trying to go into basically one city at a time. And as they expand, uh, I'll, I forget the numbers, but it's like they had to have each salesperson bring in four new restaurants a month or something. And if yeah. they did that, their finances were going to be great. Uh, there's two stories there. One is the CFO at the time didn't have a background in a company with network effects. And I can relate to this because I would have done this type of analysis. He capped market penetration at 17%, ran the numbers, said this company is never going to make any money and move on. Uh, Bill Gurley and team had this idea that once you saturate a market with open table, um, basically the network effects of that would become such that all the restaurants in that market would need to join open table to compete. So early in the company's history, he's looking at different salespeople. Most of them are doing seven deals a month, which is way more than the hurdle for. And that's great. There's one individual that's doing 35 and he goes, who is that? And what is their story? Thinking he could just steal their process or something. What turned out is that was an individual in San Francisco, which was their first market, which had become saturated. That proof point effectively proved his whole hypothesis that once you got to a certain saturation level in a city, you'd become an order taker rather than a salesperson. And that's the success of Open Table. It's and it's what when you translate this into the public market sphere, it's where you're starting to get into potential Kathy Wood territory as well. Not just there, right? But it's it's what's hard because we, we, need, to, we need to just clarify <laughs> what what you mean when you say potential Kathy Wood territory is the hypothesis that Kathy Wood talks about a lot. Yes, that hasn't really come true for her portfolio. No, yes. So <laughs> I I'm using her as the extreme. You're thank you for clarifying. What I'm saying is we'll we'll talk many many times about 
quote unquote, overvalued companies where a company might be trading for 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 times, name whatever it is that you want. It could be revenue. It could be earnings. It could be a bit of like whatever, whatever I called it yeah, like a we, year ago. A bit of? What did you <laughs> I, can, I can't even remember. Uh, uh, but anyway, um, the the hypothesis that goes into those is that there's something that then creates like a huge inflection point where their current sales, their current earnings are meaningless compared to the market that can be captured. Yeah. And that is when you catch those, it's fire, right? Amazon, uh, Google, right? There are few of these, but when you catch them, it's fire, but they're also pretty dangerous, right? It gets to Bill Gurley's point around, you can't invest in everything because most of those, like there was a chart you sent me this week around the like top uh, tech companies that are 15 or higher with their price to sales ratios. Mm-hmm. Like you invest in all those, you're done. But there's like two <laughs> that deserve, or maybe don't deserve today, but they will end up growing into like whatever they they are oh, in the future. This is this is why I think Bill Gurley is such a unique figure because he can have that os- optimistic point of view. He can say what could go right. He can make those bets. He successfully made those bets in places like Twitter and Glassdoor and Zillow and HackerOne and Nextdoor. Like he very successful, but he also is very rational. The reason I sent that chart out is because he talks specifically about how crazy it is to pay over 10 times sales for anything effectively. Now, not at seed round, because a lot of these seed round companies have like no sales. Yeah, yeah, no sales. So it's infinity. But then Diggles, to talk my book here, he goes out of his way to talk about how cheap meta is. And it almost seemed intentional in terms, he was comparing it to Twilio and not to pick on you, but to all these other companies and saying, well, the thing that's unique about meta right now is not only do they cash flow, not only do they have a great history of growth, not only do they have smart people, but they're super cheap. Um, and yeah. so and that made me smile. It, yeah, and the, the difference between, there's many, but if you take a Twilio versus Meta, a big difference between those two stocks slash companies is Meta has proven its ability to generate free cash flow, yeah. to generate earnings. And on the bear side, the people that are betting against it, what they're saying is that it's it's fallen off its high horse. Like it won't come back. It's proven it, but it's done, right? Some version of that. Uh, and Bill Gurley, us, right, as we are invested there, disclaimer, like are saying, maybe not, <laughs> right? Like it still yeah. has all those things. It has the people, it has the business, right? All that kind of stuff. Twilio, on the other hand, uh, which I'm also an investor in, Twilio has to get to that point where it's proven that it's able to generate, sorry, it has to prove that it is able to generate free cash flow and sustain earnings and like all of that kind of stuff. And so there are very different places per what Bill Gurley is saying. Do you remember the stats he gave? Because I don't want to butcher it, but I swear he said Twilio was at something as high as a price to sales ratio of like 70. And then it it came back to earth really quick. It was price to gross margin of 70. Okay. And then went to price to gross margin of three, <laughs> which are, those are different numbers. Very, very different. Anything else in your fishbowl? Uh, no, that's all I got. All right. Thanks, guys. Hit us with the review when you get a chance. And listener mail is 
skippydougals at gmail.com.